Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for December has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. Today's episode is brought to you by Hover.com, simplified domain management. You've probably registered a domain with a company that just wants to sell you services you're not interested in. Hover makes it easy. Just type in a few keywords and Hover will figure out some available domains using those terms for you like magic. There are a lot of dot whatever choices out there, but Hover has some really great ones like .net. .net is a popular extension, but it still has many domains available so you can find the one that you're looking for. Hover just keeps getting better and now they offer Google Apps. You can now add Google Apps to a new domain or one that you already own on Hover. Here's the deal. You get everything you already love about the full suite of Google's productivity apps, Gmail, Calendar, Drive, Docs, the whole package. But Google's a huge company, so they can be hard to get in touch with for your questions, concerns, and support needs. That's the best part, though. You get everything you love about Google Apps, but with the outstanding support of the team at Hover. People already love Google Apps for Gmail's 25 gigabyte storage and the ease of collaboration through chat and file sharing. And it's a great solution for businesses, but also for families and groups who want the ability to share all kinds of stuff. If you're still not quite sure Google Apps is for you, they're offering a 30-day free trial to see what you think. Hover has real human beings available for support, and their number is right on the front page of their website. If you have any trouble, just pick up the phone and call. Use the code DANSENTME or visit hover.com slash DANSENTME, and you'll get 10% off of everything you buy from hover.com. Great. Okay. My guest this week is Jose de Pierola. Did I get that right, Jose? That's correct. Man, I, I practiced that. I, I, I practiced my assumption of how to say your name. And then I figured if you told me it was different, I'd be all messed up. But I got it pretty close. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Brett. And I know my last name is one of the difficulties I have to deal with almost every day. <laughs> all right. So you are... Uh, you're you're many things. Why do, why don't you tell me what your current uh, position is? Well, right now I'm a fiction writer. I write mostly novels, and I teach um, at UTEP, the University of Texas in El Paso, creative writing. So that's that's my life right now. And and you have a you have a history in technology. Yes, I do have a long history, actually. Um, I'm probably from this generation that is in between. Um, probably you read um, Michael Gladwell, how he mentions that um, people like Steve Jobs were born right on time to catch this wave of technology. Well, I was born right after that. And so the things that we wanted to do were not possible at that moment. One of them, for instance, was using Unix um, as a way of sharing uh, computing power. And I worked in the 80s as a computer consultant, late 80s and early 90s. Wow. So so you go way back. Yes, I do. And, and imagine um, in the late 80s, you had a Unix. Santa Cruz operation was the um, Unix um, uh, brand at that moment. But um, few people heard about Unix. And Unix still was confined to universities and research centers. So it was difficult to sell the idea of Unix to most people. And uh, that happened about 10 years later. So you, in your, uh, in your kind of description of yourself, you linked me to the mother of all demos. Yes. 
Absolutely. Were were you were you like did were you did you witness this happening? I mean, not, not maybe in person, but was that during your time? Well, I was uh, too young, uh, too young to to witness it. But uh, when we began uh, working with Unix, and this is back in Peru, in my country. Um, one of the ideas we had at that moment was to bring as much technology as possible to this third world country and and then um, revamp this technology and export technology. That was a dream uh, that we had with a friend and we started a business. And while we, we were doing research for this, we found this amazing presentation by Douglas Engelbart. We couldn't see the video, but we read articles about it. And, and it seemed mind-boggling because uh, we're talking about 1968. And in 1968, he's uh, using a mouse. He's uh, showing an outlining tool. Uh, he's using something similar to Ulysses and Scrivener. And the most amazing thing, uh, the broadcasting is similar to what you might have now using Skype. It, it is amazing uh, to consider that that was done in '68. Um, yeah, the, uh, the implications, it, it makes me feel like we haven't come as far as we think we have. We haven't. I mean, in, in, uh, in a way, um, the development of computers, um, increases power, but conceptually changes very slowly. And, and that's something really amazing because when I was young, uh, many of the things that we use today were just science fiction. iPhones were science fiction. Uh, I remember um, playing with with matchboxes and modeling the matchboxes on Star Trek's um, communication devices. Sure. Uh, you know, imagine that they were something like iPhones. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Do you think that that uh, our computing habits have changed with like touch devices and the the, the improvements that technology has made over time? The, have the concepts, like our idea of touching instead of mousing, things like that, do you think that's showing consistent improvement in like kind of human interfaces? I think that the, the two big advances that we're going to see developing in the next five, even 10 years is touch interface and voice command interface. That's something that I think it's going to simplify how you interact with computers and it's going to make it more natural for people to interact with computers. Because even today, um, if you open any application on a computer, you still use the same concepts model and demoed by Engelbart in 1968. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And that's, that's, that's why I feel like maybe it's hard to change the actual the paradigms that we're used to. The whole idea of a desktop, yes, is is pretty much the same as it was in the eighties. Like we still have files sitting on the desktop. We're going back to like eighty four, early Windows, early Macintosh interfaces. But yeah, so how does? I'm sorry, I'm going to switch slightly. But how does Siri work for you? You have a you have a fairly heavy. Peruvian accent. Absolutely. Uh, the first incarnation of voice uh, recognition software did not work for me at all. And even today, when I call and I have to interact with these um, customer service systems that use voice <laughs> recognition, I have no luck whatsoever. And the first generation, the first Siri, was difficult for me to use. But now it's really amazing. Even with my accent, it understands me most of the times. 
Nice. Uh, to, to the point that um, when I'm driving my girls, sometimes I play with Siri and, and them, and it, 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 Siri understands us in the car. So that's a big improvement. That is, that's pretty huge. Okay, so so you have a you have this strong background in technology, uh, very adept with Unix and moving forward from there. But then at some point you decided to kind of eschew technology and convert to humanities. How did that happen? It happens in, um, in the mid nineties. Um, I I had been working with computers fr- from being a computer programmer to being a systems systems designer. And even at one point, I was a vice president for this consulting company in Los Angeles. But I, in the back of my mind, I had this dream of being a writer. I always loved to read since uh, I was a kid. So, uh, you know, I reached a point of life in which you realize that you live only once. And then you have to try the things that you really want to do. And working with computers was one of those things, one of those dreams. And the other one was to be a writer. And at that moment, you know, without knowing anything about the future, anything about what might happen, I just simply switched um, gears and left the computer consulting and started essentially from scratch. I went back to school to earn a master's degree in literature, then a PhD in literature. And meanwhile, I was writing fiction. So you almost reprogrammed your brain. It would would you say? Would you say that it was a, a a real stretch to kind of leave all of what you'd been doing behind and start again? It was extremely difficult. Um, on the practical side, of course, was going from uh, a well-paid job as a consultant to be a student and to live on a shoestring, right? Yeah. Um, but but the other issue was um, to have spent so much time writing code, essentially what I did for for years, to stop altogether and begin reading and writing fiction. That was a big switch. And at the beginning, it was extremely difficult. I, um, I remember that the first uh, two or three years, um, I, I felt that I couldn't speak my own language. I, my, my native language is Spanish, and I couldn't even write sentences for, for a moment. I Once in a while, I had that moment of desperation of, what am I doing here? <laughs> uh, was this a good idea? <laughs> and um, and the, the other issue was that um, the longer I stayed in this path, um, the harder I knew it would be to go back to do what I was doing before. So I, I gave myself about five years and five years to see if this is what I wanted to do. Did you? Was, I'm sorry, go ahead. And, and, and that was a moment when I had to decide whether I would go back to being a consultant or just remain doing what I'm doing now. Which would be, which is writing prose. Which is writing prose, yeah. Did you ever find uh, a correlation between code and prose as you, as you kind of regained your footing? At the beginning, it was um, I tried to um, put aside everything I knew about computers because, in my mind, that is a way of thinking and a way of um, approaching life and even you know basic problems that was different from prose. And in a way, that's true because when you write, particularly when you write fiction, there's a part of you that's not completely analytical that takes over. 
But on the other hand, anybody who writes uh, code knows that even when you're writing code, when you're implementing an algorithm, there is a moment in which uh, part of you that's not totally analytic steps in and gives you a solution. So at one moment, I realized that there is a connection between these two. There's a different connection and there's a feedback that might happen and can happen productively. Uh, yeah, because it, I, I do some writing and it seems most of the writing I do is more technical than fiction. But it seems like the basic structure, like you, you have an intro, you have uh, an exposition, you have details and you have summaries. And all of these things kind of actually in the end end up looking like a program. And then it's it's the human element that you introduce into it. It's that moment of non-analytic thinking that kind of it creates, you know, a valid for me articles. I'm sure it's it's far more complex to look at a, a full length novel, but I, I see that there are process correlations. Well, not necessarily like the actual prose itself, but uh, but that the process of writing any any piece of any length would have some correlation to writing a program. In fact, there there's a, a strong connection. Um, maybe there's, um, I don't know if there are studies done right now, but there's kind of be a part of the brain that connects both. Because um, when you're writing uh, code, you need to learn a basic language, whatever language you want to use. And if you want to um, start a function, you need to know how to declare this function, how to declare a variable, and so on and so forth. And something similar happens when you're writing either academic papers or when you're writing fiction. Uh, if you want to introduce a character, you need to know all your options to introduce this character. And, and they are basic techniques that you at one point have to learn. And only when you have learned that and when you master that, then you can sit down and, and write and decide what's the best technique at that moment. But it is similar when you are sitting down and writing a function. You know, what kind of variables do I need for this function? After you work with that language for a while, that some comes to you almost naturally. You don't have to think too much to know, oh, I need three functions. I'm sorry, three variables here. And this function is going to return a string or something like that. Sure. Okay, so so you have both these backgrounds and you're working in the humanities and eventually you begin to kind of relent on your uh, kind of denial of technology and you start to incorporate technology back into the humanities. What was that process? It was a very long process. Um, uh, a PhD takes, you know, about uh, from anything from five to 10 years. Mine took six years. And uh, through the process of writing the dissertation, I was so frustrated with the applications because I had never used applications for writing academic papers, like yeah, handling citations, for instance, or even compiling a draft. Um, and of course, right as soon as I could, I dropped uh, Microsoft Word. And uh, I found, I was very lucky, I found um, a Scrivener. Um, one of the very early versions of Scrivener. And it was a a solution for me at that moment. But gradually I realized that the the more I relied on a ready-made solution, the harder it's going to be to solve 
particular problems I have in my day-to-day writing. So I think that the going back to technology, it has to do with frustration with the applications acting technology at the moment. So, so you, you basically, you began to build your own solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about those tools in a second. Um, I'm going to jump into our second sponsor, which happens to be one of those tools. Um, our second sponsor is Smile Software and their application Text Expander, which is one of my all-time favorite Mac utilities. And I know that Jose uses it quite frequently. I use it all the time. I mean, it saves me so much time because when I um, right now, one of my functions at the university is to be the director of the graduate program. And I receive, you know, tons of emails every day. And most of them have very simple formulaic replies. And using Text Expander, I can just type two or three codes and I have an email ready to, to um, reply and uh, to send us a reply. And it looks completely professional and it looks, um, most importantly, um, free of typos, which is one <laughs> of my problems. <laughs> well, and you can even have it correct typos for if there's a word you commonly misspell mm-hmm. you can make the misspelling a trigger that automatically inserts the correct spelling for you yeah absolutely of course then you don't necessarily learn the correct spelling but your emails look good yeah and also one of the things about text expander is that you don't have to have just one template for everything but what i do have are small snippets that i expand as i need so even though the email as the reply comes from text expander actually is tailored to one particular person and one one particular question do you use the fill-in snippets at all yes all the time uh so for people who don't know the fill-in snippets let you set variables within an expansion that you fill in in a pop-up form on the fly Uh, and you can have text fields and pop-up menus and optional sections and it makes it really easy to automate a ton of the tedious work that goes into things like answering emails and anything repetitive. Uh, but it allows you to customize what you're sending or typing. Um, do you ever use the date and date math features? Yes, I do. I, I use the date. Um, my only problem with uh, Text Expander, and, and that's something that um, probably this is going to be developing the features that I write emails in Spanish and English. So my, my setup and everything in my computer is in English. So when I use the date um, options, they expand beautifully in English. But there's not an equivalent to um, expanding in Spanish. So I have to retailer the snippet every time that the month changes, for instance. Hmm. There's got to be a solution to that. I thought we could do it with shell scripts. I'm sure. I'm sure I can, I can figure something out. I haven't sat down to, to figure that, that solution, but... You know, text expander saves me so much time and so much uh, frustration. Nice. But that's another thing about text expanders. It can also, instead of just putting in text, it can run shell scripts and Apple scripts. So anything you can program, you can have text expander take input and variables and uh, glean anything it needs to from your system environment and create snippets dynamically as you go, which is... There's a ton of uh, examples on my site at brettterpster.com slash te-snippets uh, if you ever want to check those out. Uh, there, there's some good ones for, uh, for building on 
for learning how it works and, and taking them where you want to go. Uh, Text Expander is also available for iOS as Text Expander Touch. Have you used that at all? No, I haven't. But uh, you just gave me a small project for Christmas break. Uh, I'm going to start using scripts with Text Expander. Nice. Um, Text Expander Touch uh, recently had to be revamped uh, because of limitations that Apple puts on things like clipboard usage. Uh, but developers at Smile have created an SDK and they've worked around and worked with Apple's restrictions. And there is an ever growing list of text editors and other applications that have incorporated the SDK. Um, and I even have a snippet group for Markdown that you can use with Text Expander Touch for easily writing Markdown in, in emails and documents. Text Expander is $34.95, but systematic listeners can get 20% off of full licenses until January 1st, 2014, using the coupon code SYSTEMATIC. The discount applies to family packs and office packs, but does not apply to upgrades. That's a fantastic deal. It is, and I recommend that everyone check it out at smilesoftware.com slash systematic. I'll link that in the show notes. And they just released Text Expander 4.2, which has a huge, huge myriad of improvements and fixes that I can't even go into right now, but, uh, but definitely check it out. I'll check it out too. All right. So, so in the process of kind of moving back, you found Scrivener and, and it started to kind of solve problems for you, but you ultimately went with some more homebrew solutions. Yes. Scrivener, I think it's fantastic and it's a great tool. And I think that if Scrivener works for you, it's head and shoulders above any other word processor for um, fiction writers, even for academic writers. But in my case, um, there were a few things that Scrivener was not doing. And uh, one of the issues with all, any application, of course, is that you wait for the next, you have to wait for the next release. And sometimes the next release does not cover your particular needs. So at one moment, I realized that, well, I need to use um, an editor or a word processor that will allow me to extend it and expand it. And amazingly enough, um, when I started doing this research, I found a familiar face or familiar editor, which is Vim. As you know, in Unix, you use VI. And back then in the late 80s, when I used VI to set up Unix machines, it seemed clunky and, and difficult. I used it because there was the editor in any Unix machine. But when I went to see uh, Vim, which is uh, the new version, um, I saw the improvements. And also I remember one of the issues that seemed intriguing back then and seemed problematic back then, but now seems natural and even necessary, which is the, the, the fact that it's a model editor. And like any other editor you have in the market, Vim is still a model editor. And I think that that's in its advantage. And when you get used to, the, to that um, way of interacting, it feels more natural. I, I've, I've never found Vim to feel natural. <laughs> I guess you get used to it, though, huh? Yeah, you can... Uh, Think about this. Um, the computer is a model machine, right? Because when you turn on the computer, it doesn't do anything on, on itself. You have to choose what function it, it, you want it from, from the, uh, from what you want from the computer. So it can be a word processor, it can be um, illustration software, and so on and so forth. 
in the same way with Mike Dean, when you open the editor, at that moment you have to choose what you want to do with that. You're going to just work with your text or you want to input your text uh, and so on and so forth. So, so what kind of what kind of customizations? What did you build on Vim that made it uh, a kind of Scrivener work alike? Well, the two main issues were, of course, to have the way of organizing your folders and files that is very intuitive in a Scrivener, and it it is the main paradigm even today of organizing text and projects, and. Um, and again, this comes from uh, even that 1968 demo. And uh, one of the good things about Vim is that it has a huge um, user base and a huge community. So if you need any function, you just uh, Google or go to one of the two or three sites, and you're most likely are going to find that particular problem solved. And in this case, my solution was Nerd Tree which is a plugin that allows you to see on a panel, either on the left or on the right, your folders and files. So you navigate through your folders and files and easily open and close documents. That in itself makes it very close to Scrivener. And um, there is um, another plugin to have um, a full screen interface similar to Scrivener, uh, Scrivener's full screen. And um, ultimately, I sort of rewrote that plugin to make it easier for me and to consider the possibility that NetTree is open at one moment or to have several windows open and so on and so forth. But small changes that make MacVim look, which is the version I use as MacVim, look um, very close to Scrivener or to many other applications that use this paradigm of having your files and folders on one side, your text in the middle, and the ability to switch to full screen mode anytime. Nice. And another plugin you mentioned to me was uh, VimWiki. How do you use that? VimWiki is, is uh, great, and, and this is something that Scrivener sort of has, but is not as intuitive. VimWiki uh, allows you to create a wiki. Um, it, of interconnected pages for each one of your projects. And in my case, for instance, I have one main wiki, which is the novel I'm working on. And in this wiki, I have headers. One is setting, the other is characters, the other one is things to research, and so on and so forth. And then uh, once you have the character, you enter the character's name, you click enter, and it opens a fresh page for you. And then you write about this character, you click um, backspace, and then you go back to to your main page. So you can navigate this wiki and expand it organically as you expand the the research and the structure of your project. Awesome. So uh, among these uh, technologies are also your markup uh, syntaxes. So you, yes. you use multi-markdown and LaTeX, and you, do you find uh, you, you find limitations using this, or is it a full replacement for you to a word processor? Well, I, I have not found anything um, that I want to do that I cannot do either with markdown or multi-markdown and LaTeX. Um, I use I write almost everything in multi-markdown, and I miss some. Uh, markup in multi-markdown that will make my life a little easier. 
but the basic multi markdown is enough to, for most um, academic and uh, and, and text for for uh, fiction. And when I need to do um, layout, when I need to um, be very careful about the layout, I use LaTeX. And LaTeX um, solves almost any problem, any layout design problem you might find. And one of the amazing things about LaTeX, too, is that this is a technology and a tool that has been around for almost 30 years. And when you compare a document produced with InDesign, for instance, with a document produced in LaTeX, you see how much care and how much fine-tuning happens when LaTeX produces the final output. How much, um, how much design control? I've never used LaTeX beyond testing output from other applications. Um, how, much, how much design control do you, do you have? Absolute control. You can do anything anything with LaTeX. And one of the beautiful things is because LaTeX is similar to a markup language but includes some uh, um, programmatic aspects, you can implement algorithms in LaTeX. So that, for instance, um, I, I have some templates that use headings or headers which are banners with images. And one of my problems was that um, to use this as a template, I, I had to make these banners variable. So in some documents, they might be half an inch. In other documents, they might be an inch and a half. And that's something you can do in InDesign, but every time you change your mind, you spend a few minutes, if not more than that, fixing everything. And at the end, it doesn't look perfect. Um, and whereas in LaTeX, you can write a um, small function that changes the size of an image if you enter a different parameter. Hmm. So it is a combination of design and writing code. And, and one of the beautiful things about LaTeX is because it is based on this idea of a markup that also allows you to write code, you can write your own code snippets, which are called commands, that you can store away and you can reuse as often as you want. I may have to get into this yet. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, and the, the thing is, um, like when you write code, right? When you write code, you write um, one particular function and then you can reuse that function as often as you want. But also, you can go back and you can refine that function if you want to. And have it apply to everything else that uses it. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So, for instance, my, my original function to put a banner was a static function. It just put your banner on top or at the bottom, and that was it. And at one moment, I realized, oh, I need to give it an, an, um, uh, an argument so I can change the height of the banner. And at that moment, I went back and just implemented the argument. And uh, there's also a, a, an amazing and a great uh, LaTeX community. So when you have questions, there's somebody who knows more than you and helps you um, figure out your solution. Nice. Nice. I like it. I like because I, I have a strong background in InDesign and and even Quark Express. And I, I, the idea of combining that power with programmatic you know, functions basically would be just, that would be fun. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's like when you write um, an application, right? You think about your interface, you think about the main uh, 
program and then you think about the functions that are going to serve this main program. You use almost the same concepts with LaTeX because you have your commands, you have a template, and then you have your final output, which usually is a PDF document. Sure. All right. Well, I'll come back in a couple of weeks and tell everyone how my All right. <laughs> exploration went. Um, we're going to take another break for a sponsor now, and uh, that will be Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own website. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SNOW, S-N-O-W. Squarespace is constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have beautiful templates for you to start with and tons of style options for you to adjust so you can really create your own space online. Squarespace takes care of hosting, SEO, and even makes sure your site automatically looks great on any device. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you want some help, over 70 Squarespace employees are on the customer care team, which is based in New York City. Squarespace truly cares about design, and it really shows throughout their entire site, which they're always updating with new branding, and which has won numerous design awards. They have two brand new iOS apps for Squarespace customers. Squarespace Blog lets you easily draft, post, schedule, and review posts, as well as monitor and manage comments on your blog. Squarespace Blog is fully integrated with Layout Engine, allowing you to easily format text or markdown, tap and drag images into your post, and modify detailed post settings on the go. There's also Squarespace Metrics, which allows you to monitor, monitor website analytics like KPIs, page views, and unique visitors. Projections and charts for your website are at your fingertips. And don't forget about audio collections for musicians and the amazing new 3D visualizer for shipping. As I said earlier, you can try Squarespace for free, no credit card required. And if you decide to purchase, it starts at just $8 a month and includes a domain name if you sign up for a year. Make sure you get 10% off and support the show by using the offer code SNOW, so thanks to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and Systematic. All right, that brings us to the top three picks. I will let you begin, Jose, with your first pick. All right, uh, my first pick would be um, the EB Garmont, which is um, a new version of the all-time classic Garmont font. What makes this um, version particularly special is that it's, on the one hand, free, um, and on the other hand, is constantly improved by um, the designer. And um, if, if you follow the link, I hope that you can put the link uh, on the show notes, um, is George Daphner, and he's based in Germany, and he's tweaking this font constantly. It's one of his um, main projects. And, and what makes um, this design particularly interesting is that he um, is very careful about the typographical extensions that are not still usual in um, computers, uh, on in, uh, internet, and even in some um, word processors, something like uh, ligatures um, or old numerals, uh, small caps, and so on and so forth, which has been part of the repertoire of typography for centuries, uh, which were abandoned, um, unfortunately, uh, in the in the um, age of internet, at least in the first 15 years. But now uh, this font allows you to use all those extensions too. And it looks great on the screen and looks even better on paper. 
Is the is the, the font on the website? Is that E.B. Garamond? E.B. Garamond. Uh huh. Yeah, it's beautiful. It really is. Yeah. Okay. That is. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the first font we've ever featured in the topics, but it's definitely an awesome one to feature. And it's a super classic font too. It is. It is. And and what? Why? Why was it just to to kind of revisit the the lost elements that this font was created, or is there anything else that makes it? Because there's a lot of Garamond variants out there. Oh, there, yeah, there are tons. I mean, everybody and, and their dog um, have or release a Garamond font, but I think um, one of the main issues that happened. Um, you, you're probably too young to see this, but to uh, happen when we switched to computer-based uh, typography was that we lost a lot of the beautiful aspects of typography. And uh, for instance, um, when if you go back to letterpress um, uh, books, you see that almost every line is hand-adjusted, mm-hmm. so it will look beautiful. And, and the fonts that even many of the fonts we have today on internet, they don't consider it. There's an algorithm that adjusts the line, but it doesn't mean that that's the best option. So that's one of the big issues. But the other big issue is that the old typography consider that um, characters are not just freestanding elements on a design. Characters come in contact to one another, and when they come in contact, they do influence one another. And therefore, when you have an F and an I... I was just it, looking at that ligature. Yeah. In the, the word F, field, it's gorgeous. It becomes a ligature. You have two Fs, becomes a ligature, and so on and so forth. So when the I travels on the page, they feel more harmonious. And and the third element is out of kerning. And that's something that even today, um, some word processors don't even do kerning. And again, uh, in all typography... When you see uh, two characters, for instance, a T and an O, you cannot just put them side by side. The O has to be closer to the stem um, or to the stem of the T in order for the white space to look harmonious with the other white space on on the page. All of those um, niceties are here in E.B. Garamond, and it amazes me that somebody would took upon himself to design this font and to release it. Um, for free. I mean, obviously, you can uh, give a donation if you want. I have um, uh, um, a while ago, and I encourage everybody who uses this font to to leave a donation on uh, Joe's um, Duffner uh, Duffner's page. I will. I will link the donation link for that because this it really is gorgeous. You're right. The the FI and the FF ligatures are they're they're perfect. They're perfect. And well, and 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 kerning has been kind of lost in the world of web design too. Absolutely, we, Even- have, we have such little finite control. Like we can, we can only move in such large increments, really, to create to create fine tuned letter spacing. Yeah, well, one of the things that frustrates me a little bit, and one, that's one of the reasons why I went to LaTeX is that we are in the 21st century. We are about 500 years away from the first um, books set on typography. Nevertheless, our computers cannot produce documents as beautiful as those set in the 16th century. There's something wrong with that. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, 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 and I'm not sure that people care so much that it, it's going to improve. Like, I'm not sure there's so much interest in restoring that kind of handcrafted letterpress technique that we'll see actual improvements in the software. I think that it will. Um, and the two reasons are, one is that these improvements in uh, typography happen because on the one hand, there was aesthetic reasons, but also there were other practical reasons in typography back in the 16th, 17th century. And those advantages are going to be seen soon. And they're realized. I mean, even um, some phones now use ligatures on the web. Um, the website I have, the, the blog Digital Life, I try to use ligatures and I try to use kerning as much as possible in my CSS. But the other reason is that um, there's a number of new uh, foundries, um, type designing um, companies all over the world. And, and for instance, uh, Joff, he lives in Germany and he releases the font and he can get feedback and he can distribute the fonts all around the world. Sure. And there are others in Argentina, others in Spain, uh, others in Poland, and they're producing beautiful, beautiful typography. So there's there's a new renaissance, uh, typographical renaissance happening right now. And I think that technology is going to uh, respond to that. Very cool. I'm excited. I, I, I do enjoy typography. Yeah, that's, uh, as you can tell, it's, it's one of my passions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can tell. <laughs> All right. Well, my first pick is going to be Image Alpha. Um, I-M-A-G-E-A-L-P-H-A. It's a free application for compressing PNG files for the web. And it does, I've tried a lot of commercial software that compresses PNGs to make them, you know, faster on the web. But it is the best I have found and it's free. And uh, it works in coordination as well with an, a program called Image Optim, which is great also for compressing JPEG images and gets about the same reduction ratio as I get from programs costing up to $20. And Image Optim is also free. Uh, so those are two of my favorite web image applications. Great. And do, do you need to have a script or a JavaScript or something uh, on the other end no. to decompress the font? I'm sorry, the image? No. This is, this is purely, you do it before you post the image. Mm -hmm. And I have them set up in drop zone. I just drag any image that's about to go to a website. I just drag it onto image alpha if it's a PNG and straight to image optim if it's already a JPG. And uh, and then I just they open up and with image optim it's automatic like it just compresses it based on the best algorithm it can find mm -hmm. and I'll get usually between eight and fifteen percent reduction in file size with no visible quality loss. Oh, that's great! And do you know if you can use them in PDF files too? Not on PDF. Oh, okay. But did you know that you can you can reduce file sizes with preview? Yeah, I've tried. I've done that before um, because one of the issues I have with uh, the PDF documents I produce is I, I need to create one that's very small and fast for the web, and it it only happens in post production. But one of the small issues in preview, I don't know if they have solved that right now. But when um, the uh, upgrade to Maverick happen or Mavericks happen, 
when you open and save and preview, it all scrambles your text. I don't know if you had that issue. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. And it's very frustrating because if you produce a document, you want it to be searchable. And you want your PDF to be searchable. Oh, so it uh, compresses it into an image? No, no. It scrambles, uh, compresses the images, but it scrambles the text. And, uh-huh. and you, if you copy and paste the text, it's just gibberish and you don't understand anything. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, the, the, that's the only reason I really use PDFs in my own workflow mm-hmm. is so that the text remains searchable while only creating one file. Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Yeah, that's horrible. Uh, I, I do. I use PDFs uh, a great deal in my teaching because uh, you create um, an outline for a class and you post it on Blackboard or you send it to the students and everybody has the text and it's searchable. Uh, or there's a reading, I can just put the reading on PDF. And it, it is, uh, and on that aspect, at least, uh, technology has changed a lot how you interact in the classroom and how you interact with students. I, I For instance, I don't receive any printed assignments anymore. Everything comes to me in PDF format. Well, that's, yeah, I... I Teachers who accept things in doc format, I I, I, I worry that uh, I worry about a lot of things. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> PDF yeah. is PDF is a solid format that allows allows the 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 creator to know exactly what the end receiver is going to see. Yes, and and I think um, I mean from a teacher's uh, perspective is um, a matter of courtesy to give them a format, to give your instructor or teacher a format that is very easy to open. And yes. PDF, you can open in anywhere. Yes. Whereas a dog, sometimes you cannot open it with Microsoft Word. Right, or or on your iPad. Yeah, absolutely. And I do all my grading on my iPad, so PDF has to be my um, only format for now. Really? That's awesome. You do all your grading on an iPad. All my grading, uh, all my editing, uh, I do on my iPad. And wow. it, it's, um, and, and that's why I said that the gestures are something that is a development in computer interface. Because after a while, you get used to whatever program you're using. And it, it's amazing how you're just moving your hands on the screen and doing corrections or typing a little bit and doing corrections. And it becomes a very fluid um, part of my my um, the way I work. Nice. All and right. uh, with, with Dropbox, of course, that gets uploaded immediately. And when you go back to your computer, all your corrections or your grading is there. That is a great workflow. I'm, I love that. I really do. All right. So what's your second pick? My second pick is um, a very clunky and... Honestly, ugly keyword uh, is called Space Saver, and it's manufactured by a company called Unicomp, uh, unicomp.com. And what happened is, um, at one moment, IBM decided they will not manufacture keywords anymore, and this company bought the patent for that particular IBM Model M keyword. And they have been producing the same keyword. It's the same design. The logo is different, but it's the same design. And for those like me who have used these keywords in the 80s, um, this is a a perfect upgraded version because it's a USB connector and understands uh, Apple or IBM, whichever, I'm sorry, or PC, whichever computer you have, and has this feedback as you type that, at least in my case, reduces the typos uh, immensely. It's, It's a... 
clunky, it's loud, but it's a solid keyboard. And, and as I said before the show, when I sit down and start typing in this keyboard, I feel like I'm working. And, and that's called, it's called a buckling spring? The technology is called buckling spring, uh-huh. And that, that, I assume that predates like the cherry brown and cherry blue keys. Yeah, it predates all the cherry um, uh, switches. Um, but I think it's contemporary to other, like Alps, for instance, uh, which was used by Apple. Okay, so type something on your keyboard right now so we can hear what this keyboard sounds like. That is hellacious. <laughs> I have to close um, the door of my studio, so I will not <laughs> bother my, anybody in the family. <laughs> nice. So you find that uh, that uh, a loud uh, tactile feedback kind of keyboard uh, m- makes you write better, makes you feel like you're writing better. What is the what's the point for you? Well, the, the two issues um, for me are one is the feedback. Um, I would do without the the clankiness and the sound. Um, I'll be happy with a keyboard that doesn't make any sound at all, but gives me that that feedback on the one hand. On the other hand, the resistance that you need uh, or the keyboard has sort of forces you to push a little harder. And that, in my case, reduces uh, what I had before, um, a tendency to car- to develop a carpal tunnel. Uh, when I was typing my dissertation, I used to work uh, on my fiction in the morning, then teach my classes, and then work on my dissertation in the afternoon. So I was typing the whole day and I, and I was doing uh, using a laptop. And at one moment I developed that horrible feeling that you are losing sensation in your hand, especially in your pinky, yes. and you have this pain. And in the research I did, uh, one of the things that came up sort of consistently was a different keyboard. And that's why uh, that was the moment when I bought um, an old IBM Model M keyboard and when I found these keyboards, um, which were upgraded and didn't have any problems, I bought one. And it's been, I had this one for more than six years and still solid. Nice. Nice. I've been through, been through quite a few tactile keyboards. Haven't found one that's taken me away from my Apple Bluetooth aluminum keyboard yet, but I do appreciate the kind of, it's a combination of sentimentality and practicality. Absolutely. I mean, and, and that's what tools are, right? On the one hand, they have to do the job. But on the other hand, they have to make you feel good while you're using them. Right on. Nice. All right. So my second pick is an, a free application called Control Plane. And Control Plane, Control Plane lets you define a series of rules that tell tell you tell your computer what environment you're in so you can have it uh, detect bluetooth devices you can have it detect usb and thunderbolt and connected drives and network and wi-fi networks and all of these things and when you when you combine them in a certain order you're in this location and when you remove these items you're in another location and it determines where you are and what you're doing based on these criteria. And then you can assign actions to entering and leaving different locations. So, like, for example, I recently discovered that Bluetooth affects my network speeds on Wi-Fi. 
So I have control plane detect when I plug in my 27-inch Thunderbolt display and my external hard drive, then it knows I'm at my desk and it turns Bluetooth on so that I can use my external keyboard and trackpad. And then when I disconnect that, um, it'll turn it'll toggle Bluetooth off. It also toggles Wi-Fi back on because I've Ethernet hardwired into my Thunderbolt display, etc. And so I never have to think about whether or not my Bluetooth is on at the same time as my Wi-Fi. It just happens automatically. And Control Plane, it, well, it's a pretty simple idea, but it has a ton of kind of uh, tweaks that you can make to it to to fit just about any situation. Wow, that sounds awesome. So you can just go from one um, space to another and your settings will change automatically. Yeah, all these things, you can have it toggle all kinds of things, and you can have it run shell scripts. So just about anything you want to happen, say when you when you switch from your home network to a coffee shop, you could have it launch whatever you need to, have it turn on VPNs, do it all automatically. That's great. And can you share your synchronization um, well, via Dropbox or something like that? Um, like I would assume you could change, you could probably just sync the P list. Mm -hmm. I think it's all stored in the preferences P list. So yeah, you could probably sync it between machines. Yeah, because I have a computer in in my studio and I have another one in my office, um, at school, but I sometimes uh, move my laptop and my iPad from one place to the other. And it'd be nice that if they can see where they are so they can log in differently and also uh, hook, hook up with the computer, whether it is the one at school or the one at home. Yeah, you could probably actually do some iPad stuff with it too, because it's, it's, it's for the Mac, but mm-hmm. it can detect Bluetooth and network devices. So you could probably have it detect when your iPad was in range and perform actions based on that too. Mm, that's great. I'm, I'm going to book it up. All right. All right, so your third pick. My third pick is um, ScannerSnap. It's a scanner that I've been using for a while now, probably uh, seven or eight years. And um, it is expensive. And, and, you know, for a while I didn't want to buy it because it was very expensive. But at one moment um, when I started teaching, um, I realized that I needed to scan um, documents, a lot of documents, our readings and, and uh, so on and so forth. And most importantly, I needed them to be uh, searchable PDF files. And, and of course, you can, at that moment, I'm talking about six, seven years ago, you could go and buy a flatbed scanner that was $100. But you spend a lot of time doing the scanning. And uh, now, after I bought this scanner, I can, you know, scanning is not even an issue, not even a problem for me. I don't even think about the the task of scanning anything. And this afternoon I scanned a whole book because I'm going to use it in my class. And I was just doing some other stuff while I was scanning because the scanner is fast. It's very reliable. Um, I have this one for seven years. It hasn't broken once. And uh, it interfaces with um, the software you want to use. I mean, produces a PDF document and you can use the built-in OCR software or you can use um, any other OCR software you might might want to use or you prefer. And, and at the end, uh, you have um, searchable PDF file out of your documents. 
And um, the, the main issue is that it has a tray so you can feed the paper or the documents and it just reads them very fast, as fast as you need or as accurately as you need. And, and it uh, scans both sides, right? Yeah, it scans both sides. It's got um, auto detects color. So it, it, if you include one page that's in color and the other one is black and white, it will scan one in color and the other in black and white. Yeah, I don't have one of these, but my, my parents just got one and they love it. Yeah, I mean, if you need to scan documents, this is the investment you need to make. And because it's going to save you a lot of trouble and a lot of headaches. And, uh, you know, it's going to prevent you from being a slave to your flatbed scanner. <laughs> nice. I, I use a doxy for the little bit of scanning that I have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I imagine after seeing what my parents are doing with theirs, that uh, if I had to scan anything more than a two or three page contract, it would be a, a definite worthwhile investment. Yeah. And one of the beautiful things about the scanner is once you have it, you can use it for a lot of things. So there are uh, some some um, bills, for instance, that I, I need to pay at a certain day of the month. I just run it through the scanner and I put the PDF in, um, in a folder and that folder is connected with my task um, paper um, document. So when the time comes, I just can pull that PDF and see how much I need to pay and, and do the payment. So it sort of integrates easily into your workflow. Because nice. it, it is, I mean, that's the thing about good tools, right? It's reliable, is there, and you forget about the tool. You just use it. Now I want to write a Hazel rule that automatically detects when a bill is due and pops it up for you to pay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah as a matter of fact, I have um, a Hazel rule, and I also use Hazel that um, I put a prefix on my PDFs, and so the, those uh, PDFs go to these notes, and they have uh, a due date. So it's easy for me to, to see. And when I scan all their documents, I depending on the prefix of Hazel, just archives them in the particular folder where they belong. Nice. Nice. I like your style. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken me years to figure that out. But the, the amazing thing is that um, all of these concepts is something, you know, I, I sort of advocate for before. Um, early in the 90s, when the first scanners were um, being released commercially, uh, I was in a few projects in which we tried to minimize paper and offices and workflows and, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's to me, it's a, um, a way of, of seeing life that is slowly integrated into the day-to-day of everybody, right? Because 20 years ago, techno- these technologies were available, but only to big corporations or big companies. Now you can just have it in your living room and everybody can use it. That's amazing. Awesome. All right, my third pick. My third pick is music. Um, oh, great. It's uh, uh, the band The National. Have you ever heard The National? No. I highly recommend this. Uh, like, they've been in my life for years. They, they, their first album was 2001, I think. Uh, self-titled debut. But, uh, but their most recent album, Trouble Will Find Me, uh, you can find it on Spotify, I assume on RDO and other services. It is, it's haunting. The guy has this like baritone 
slow spoken voice and the band is it's down tempo kind of stuff mm-hmm. but it's so the melodies like he ends hooks in a way that makes you very anxious to hear the next line and, and oh, not just cool. lyrically but but melodically as well and it's it's haunting stuff it's it's slow it's what i listen i listen to a lot while i work it's good working music but it's also really good just relaxing music um there's a song called uh i need my girl on the new album that i recommend everyone go listen to it's beautiful oh i'm gonna check them out can you can you work uh to music uh, it depends on the day There are times that music does nothing but distract me. There are times I cannot focus on more than one thing at a time. And then there are times that background music actually helps calm my mind, actually helps me focus by kind mm-hmm. of creating a, a white noise kind of, it's like I don't hear the music so much as I just use it to block out other distractions. Mm-hmm. I think that that probably is the case with me too, because when I write fiction, um, I usually listen to classical music and I cannot listen anything with lyrics. Yeah, But I was when, say, I'm, lyrics when are, I'm doing yeah. anything else uh, and when I'm working with Vim and, and working on a plugin, if I listen to jazz or any other music with lyrics, it sort of works. Somehow it works. And, and it, You don't get this, I don't get distracted by, by that music. Yeah, I think there's something like this, the, the subconscious mind latches onto it, but it doesn't take the forefront of your focus. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon. But I was talking with someone about that last night, actually. Like the ability to listen to music and work at the same time. And sometimes it works, sometimes, sometimes it's seriously detrimental. <laughs> um, the Nationals, I'm going to check them out, definitely. All right. Well, and that brings us to our last sponsor of the day, which is Shutterstock.com, where you'll find over 28 million images, stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and 1 million video clips. Start your search at Shutterstock.com to find that perfect image for your website, ad, publication, or any other creative project. Shutterstock.com gives you a global image collection to find images from around the world to suit your project. Choose between image packs and monthly subscription packages. Choose whatever fits your need and never have to compromise. And if you need just one image for a blog or a mock-up, you can do that too. Every time you visit Shutterstock, you'll find something new because they add 20,000 new images every day and 12,000 new videos every week. It's more affordable than you think too, with no extra charge for large files. You can download any image at any size and pay only one price. They don't nickel and dime you for high-resolution images. If you need them, just take them. You can easily curate and share pictures via light boxes. You can choose your favorite pictures or videos and add them to your own light box gallery as you search. You can also use their iPad app to do this very easily. There's also something called enhanced license access. If you like an image and you want to run it on print or swag for your trade shows, they can get you an enhanced license for any image. They also have a huge library of vectors, icons, infographic templates, and video clips should you need any of those. If you need help at Shutterstock.com, you get an account rep dedicated to you who will answer any questions. They also have 24-hour support during the week. To sign up for a free browse account, go to Shutterstock.com. There's no credit card needed. When you find the images you like and you decide to purchase, use the offer code DANSENTME1213 
and get 25% off any package you put together over at Shutterstock.com. All right. Well, Jose, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Brad, for having me on the show. You can be found at josepierola.com. josepierola.com, uh-huh. Oh, there's a day in there? Yes. I missed it. Okay, so it's J-O-S-E-D-E-P-I-E-R-O-L-A.com. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And then you can also, you also have uh, digital life, all one word, dot josepierola.com. Yes, that's my blog. Well, you, you're a fascinating person, and I love your um, your integration of technology into the humanities. That's beautiful. Thank you very much. Right. And it's been a pleasure to be in your show, and I'm a fan of your show, and a, a fan of everything you develop. Um, Marked is one of my favorite applications. I don't know why we didn't mention it today. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, and I just added, uh, it hasn't been released yet, but I just added the ability to customize the font on headers and footers with, uh, with connection with uh, multi-markdown metadata, too. Oh, wonderful. You may Excellent. enjoy that. Yeah. All right. Anyway, enough about me. Uh, we will uh, we'll be back in one week. That was episode 75 with Jose de Piorola. And uh, thanks again for being here. Thank you. And we'll see everybody soon.